turn this morning with you, if you would, with me to Mark chapter 8. As we continue in our journey through the book of Mark, let me remind you next week we'll take a brief break and look at the doctrine of incarnation in the book of Galatians. But here we continue in Mark chapter 8 as Jesus continues to minister, particularly around the Lake of Galilee in different locations. I want to draw your attention to the title of the sermon, Jesus Satisfies. What does satisfy mean? If you were to look up this word on your phone or in a computer or something, you might find three definitions. One is to meet the expectations, needs, or desires of someone. The second one is to fulfill a desire or need. And the third definition, rather interesting, to provide someone with adequate information or proof so that they are convinced of something. Well, I have to say, I think we in the 21st century kind of deal with the first and second definition mostly in our lives. We like to satisfy our needs and desires and fulfill them, but we don't as much look at the third one to be provided with adequate information or proof that they're convinced that something is true. Jesus here is convincing the people in his actions, his teaching, his words, and his interactions with the leaders of the people that he is something and he will do things for the people. He satisfies. Follow along as I read from three little sections in chapter 8 that all fit together. In those days when, again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them, and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread. And they had only one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not, understand, do you not yet under, uh, perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. 
And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? We consider these words, let us bow briefly in prayer. Father, this is your word, inspired by your Holy Spirit, through the pen of Mark. As we think through the testimony of Peter, Lord, we pray that these words would not fall on deaf ears or on hearts that are not able to receive them, but that by your Spirit you'll open our ears and hearts to understand and to believe and to trust that they are true. Lord, I pray that anything spoken here would be consistent with your own word or else pass away never to be heard from again. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1965, there was a musical group, some of you might know who they are when I read these words, and they wrote a song that said, I can't get no satisfaction, because I try and I try and I try. When I'm driving in my car, when a man comes on the radio, he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination, but I can't get no satisfaction. You know, the people in the first century were looking for satisfaction. They didn't drive cars. They didn't have rock and roll music. But they were looking for all kinds of satisfaction. As the crowds came to Jesus, as still crowds want today, maybe not coming to Jesus in large numbers, but they're looking for satisfaction of physical needs, miracles, healing, signs, amazing things that would satisfy their hurts and their needs. They're also looking for satisfaction of spiritual needs. There are some are looking for the Messiah even still. Some are looking for truth. They're also looking for satisfaction for intellectual needs. Proof and evidence that Jesus really is who he says he is or that the Bible is true or other things. In fact, we're all looking in many places for satisfaction. Sometimes we're looking in all the wrong places. But Jesus here never turns away the crowds, but always invites them in because he reminds them by his actions and his teaching that he will satisfy their physical needs, their spiritual needs, and even their intellectual needs. Now, the first section of this chapter, chapter 8, almost seems like a repeat from just a couple chapters ago, doesn't it? Jesus had already fed 5,000 plus women and children, maybe up to 15 or 20,000 people, with just five loaves of bread and seven fish. We come to this section of scripture, and here there are 4,000 people. Matthew tells us there are also women and children here. And then he tells us there's a few small fish. Now, some people will look at this and say, oh, well, that's just the same event. It's looking at different things. But no, even Jesus himself says later in the chapter, dividing these two things. Do you remember how many loaves and fish or how many baskets full were left over the first time? How many were left over the second time? Jesus indicates here that these were two very different events. You know, it's interesting, this particular event, the feeding of the 4,000, starts with divine compassion. After all, this is what has taken place. Here's this crowd out in a desolate place. It seems to be there, there's more likelihood that there are Gentiles in this crowd because they're in a Gentile location here. But as he 
has gathered together and they've been with him now. Notice they've been with Jesus for three days. Now this means that they were camped out wherever this was, spending day and night with him. This this was a wilderness area. In fact, the disciples were going to say, how can we feed anybody in this desolate place? Where are we going to get the food? In other words, they weren't staying in hotels. They were staying out in the countryside. And they had been with Jesus for three days. Now, it doesn't tell us what he did during those three days, but we know Jesus' ministry was like this. He might have healed some or done some miraculous signs, but for the most part, he was probably teaching them, teaching them perhaps by parable, perhaps by uh, doctrine or whatever you might say uh, would have been the, the teaching. We're not given all that information, but imagine three days they have this. Now, Apparently, they didn't come provided with provisions. We're not told how long it's been since they've eaten. You know, in our, in our particular tradition here, if we don't eat a couple meals a day, we think that's pretty bad. Our stomachs start to growl. But here, apparently, many of them had had nothing to eat for perhaps this entire time period Because Jesus says he's concerned that they might faint on the road. Now imagine, you wanted to learn about Jesus so much that you forgot about food for three days, and you're there with the people listening to Christ the entire time. Now I have to say, if I were to preach for three hours today, I don't think many people would say. Imagine if I preached for three days and taught you, and you stayed overnight in the church building. This is what's going on here. They are so interested in being with him that their physical needs have been forgotten. And yet, just like the feeding of the 5,000, here the feeding of the 4,000, he says to them, If I send them away hungry to their homes, this is verse 3, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from far away. And the disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? They don't seem to be quite as rude in their response to Jesus as they were in the feeding of the 5,000. But he asked them, how many loaves do you have this time? They have seven. They have more than they had before. There's fewer people. That's good. He directs the crowd to sit on the ground just like he did before. He takes the seven loaves. They evidently, according to verse 7, also have a few fish. This time he prays not once for the food. He actually prays twice for the food. He prays once for the bread, once for the fish. But the indication here is the disciples and the people realize Jesus will provide for them miraculously again a second time. Now, the details here differ from the 5,000. Again, there's 4,000 mentioned here, probably particularly of the men, plus women and children. You have different numbers of fish and bread. You have different circumstances as far as who the crowd is. We knew that the first crowd was probably, maybe even exclusively, but at least mostly Jewish. This crowd, likely in the place where they are, is at least a mixture and has Gentiles in it. And, of course, the other thing that that takes place here is we're not given quite as many details. Uh, Here in this place, we understand it's a desolate place. Maybe there wasn't grass. Mark had said in the first one there was green grass that they sat down on in orderly companies. But here, it's a desolate place. 
They, for three days, not just one day, that was the feeding of the 5,000. They were just there the one day, one afternoon. It was evening before they went home here. They'd been with him three days. And though the details differ, notice what happens by the end of the miracle. Verse 8 says they ate and were satisfied. You see, the miracle of this, remember, if you hadn't eaten for three days, you're pretty hungry. You know, for those of us who were here Friday night at the, uh, the, the Christmas party, there, were all, there was all kinds of food. And let me tell you, you could probably go three or four days without eating again. But here, these folks were hungry, and assumedly, they could have eaten a lot. And it wasn't just to satisfy their pangs of hunger. The, the word that's used here is not just a taste, but satisfaction. Their stomachs were filled. And then they took up the broken pieces. This is another detail that's different. The word for baskets is different from one uh, particular uh, section about the 5,000 to the section here about the 4,000. Uh, the, the, the 12 baskets were the small carrying baskets like a, a wicker purse or something that someone would take as they went. And the 12 baskets were assumedly uh, the baskets of the 12 disciples that they would carry with them on their journey. Here, these seven baskets were great, big, huge wicker containers. And they took up these broken pieces, seven of them left over, even though there were just seven loaves at the beginning, now they have seven baskets. In other words, there's more at the end than there were at the beginning. Jesus satisfies our physical needs. You know, there was a movement in the early church not too long after these pages were written when the Gospels were being distributed among the people and, and the people had begun to, uh, in the church, to establish traditions and all those things. There was an early movement called asceticism. Perhaps you know what asceticism is. It's described as severe self-discipline and avoidance of all forms of indulgence for religious reasons. In fact, people would abstain from certain foods. They would abstain from certain pleasures. In fact, the extreme individuals would live out in wilderness areas and they might even harm themselves, self-flagellate, whip themselves uh, if they felt like they had done something wrong or in order to keep themselves from sinning. And there were even some others who, who did very strange and bizarre things. There, there was one individual that sat up on the top of a pole for a long period of time and they would put food up this pole to him, and he was considered an ascetic, someone who was being very close to God because he was depriving himself of the niceties of life. What strange and bizarre behavior. Is that what God wants from us, to be so religious? That like this crowd, we just don't eat for several days, or like those in the early church, we starve ourselves from pleasures of the world? Well, it's interesting that Jesus satisfied the crowd because when he provided food for the masses, it's a reminder that his first miracle was at a wedding to change water into wine. And it's interesting that in the Old Testament, we get the picture of when we're even struggling, perhaps, God will prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. In other words, the picture of sitting down and feasting at a banquet with God 
And a banquet with God incarnate, Jesus Christ, is a reminder that Jesus is all about satisfying our physical needs. Now, this isn't a blank slate that says, well, if you're a Christian, you're not going to have pain, you're not going to have disease, you're not going to suffer, you're not going to die, you're not going to do all these other things. That's not what it's talking about here. But it's a reminder that Christ does care about us, have compassion about us, and will provide for us on a day-to-day basis. But it's not just the physical needs that are important, is it? It's also the spiritual needs. It's interesting what happens next in Mark's account. It says the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test it. Now, of course, this is in the same location. He's gone across the, the, the lake again. And here's the problem with the Pharisees. Pharisees, remember, they're very religious people too. Now, they have not, they're not ascetists. They're not those who would deprive themselves of the indulgence of wonderful things. In fact, they would participate in parties and banquets and other things. They would indulge in those things. They enjoyed life to a certain extent. But they were very religious in that they were moral people, and they felt it was very important to keep the religious code of the law, even so much so that they would have their own code around the law so that they would not only keep God's law, they would try to keep a plethora of laws so that they wouldn't break God's law. The problem was their unbelief in the grace of God and in the provision of Jesus as the Messiah. And notice how they came seeking him. Now the crowds came and saw him assumedly either for the miracles or for the teaching or for the reputation of Jesus or something like that. Maybe some of them believed. It doesn't tell us in the scriptures here in this particular section. But notice why the Pharisees came. They came and began to argue from, with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. What did they really come for? They came for a debate. I've met a lot of Christians like this. At least those who say that they're Christians, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, I don't know their hearts. There's a lot of Christians that say they're Christians and they love to debate doctrine. In fact, they're just waiting for the opportunity to argue with the pastor or to argue at a Bible study or to argue someplace because they love the debate. And they think by debating, they're very religious because they have all this knowledge And they're seeking, perhaps, to win the debate. Now, I love to win debates. I do. I'm, after all, someone who's studied in theology and history and other things, and and I love to be right. In fact, even yesterday at the baby shower, it was interesting to me, some of the the responses in in the game we played. And and it wasn't the person who did the game. It was the the game they'd gotten from from somewhere else. And it talked about, uh, for example... It talked about how is it that the wise men were warned uh, not to go back to Herod. And the answer in the quiz was this. It it was the the angel of the Lord. But if you read the scripture, it says merely they were warned in a dream. And I thought, boy, it's so good that I'm right. You know, we love to win debates. This is the Pharisees. They love to be right. They loved the attention they got for following the law because they were right. 
They loved the attention they got for their teaching because they loved they were right. They loved the fact that they studied the scriptures and they knew all the answers. And so they came for a debate and they requested there a sign. And of course this sign on the one hand, it's surprising. You may be surprised to know in some ways it's kind of a legitimate request. Because God often gave signs to indicate that he was on the move. In fact, this is what happened with Moses in Egypt. Moses was given all kinds of signs. So when the people said, well, who sent you? Moses can say, Yahweh sent me. And here's the proof. And he could throw down his staff and it would turn into a snake. Or he could take his hands out of his pockets and they would be leprous and he would put his hands back in his pockets and they wouldn't be leprous. These were signs. There were also signs that the prophets did. Elijah or Elisha or others. And, and there were signs that Jesus really was doing when he was healing the deaf man or a blind man. This was a sign that the prophecies of Isaiah were really taking place. And also just the, the miraculous birth of Jesus that we celebrate at Christmas time. In many ways, this was a sign of the fulfillment of God's word. There will be a virgin with child, Isaiah 7, 14. Or from Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Those things will take place. This will be a sign to you. You hear those words. So in one sense, it's a legitimate request in the right circumstances to show, are you really the Christ or the Messiah? But the problem is, this legitimate request for these Pharisees in this place came with an illegitimate motive. They weren't interested in seeing if Jesus was really the Christ. They wanted to test him. Thou shalt not put the Lord thy God to the test. They were testing him because they wanted to make him prove things for them. The problem was this. He was already doing all these signs. Notice what's happened at this point in Mark. They've already sent people, these Pharisees or others from Jerusalem, to try and investigate the matter, and they've seen him heal people even in the temple courts. They've seen him teach in such ways that they cannot counter his teaching. He has done all these things, and the fulfillment of the prophecies is already taking place. Why would they need another sign? It's because nothing was good enough for them. So here is the burden of Jesus. These Pharisees come, and remember, he has compassion even on these Pharisees. At one point, he declares them in Scripture the most righteous people in their society. He says, you have to be more righteous than the Pharisees to enter the kingdom of heaven. He sighs deeply in the spirit. This is indicated, this burden is indicated by the sign. You know, I, I imagine Jesus probably got frustrated, not in a sinful sense like we do. You know, when I get frustrated, I sin with my frustration. But Jesus had to get frustrated when these Pharisees who knew the Old Testament, who wanted to do what was right, who were the leaders of God's people, didn't accept him for who he was as evidenced by his works and his teaching. What a burden. And so there was a refusal to give him a sign. He says, I'm not going to give you a sign. 
You know, it's kind of funny. It's ironic. He's already been giving them sign after sign after sign after sign. And he's going to give them sign after sign after sign. But when they ask for one, he says, I'm not going to give it to you. In fact, Matthew, in the same account, says this. He says, the only sign I will give you is the sign of Jonah, the Old Testament sign. The sign of Jonah, you know, that Jonah was swallowed by the fish, and for three days and three nights he was in the belly of the fish. The fish vomited on the dry land, and the whole idea is that the Son of God will also be in the belly of the earth, and Sheol, or whatever you want to call it, for three days and three nights. In other words, the sign was coming, even if they didn't understand now, even if they didn't see all his healings, even if they didn't believe all his teaching when he died on the cross and was resurrected, that would be the true sign for that generation. I tell you, people are still looking for these signs. They're searching for spirituality. Some of them are looking for a feeling on a higher plane. Aldous Huxley back in the middle of the 20th century tried to find it in drugs or sex. New atheists, new age religions, those who follow those things in meditation or yoga or whatever experience it is they're trying to find, they're trying to find some escape from reality and become more spiritual. They're looking for signs, they're looking for feelings, they're looking for some emotional experience. And these signs were already here for the Messiah. You want something better? Look to the kingdom of God. You want something that will help you escape a sinful world and all of its consequences? You can't get that until Jesus comes back or you die. But you can get that if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and then when you die, you immediately, your spirit goes to be with him. Or when Jesus comes back, all who believe in him will be with him forever because he is the Messiah, the Savior of the people. When we hear these words at Christmas time, that there will be born to you of the line of David a Savior who will save his people from their sins, this is the sign. He came. Here are four gospel authors that say that he came. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Here are some other apostles or early church leaders that say that he came. James and Peter and Paul. And the list goes on. These individuals recognize that these signs declared in the Old Testament were fulfilled by the signs and work and action and life of Jesus in the New Testament. The proof, we say, is in the pudding. Jesus is the Messiah. The Pharisees just simply refuse to believe it. And the world here, unless hearts are unveiled unless eyes are unblinded and ears are not stopped up anymore. We can see that God is still at work through Jesus Christ in his church. But Jesus also satisfies our intellectual needs. You know those needs about the proof being in the pudding, those needs that is a adequate information or proof to be convinced of something. Is Jesus really the answer? You know, we say that little euphemistic thing this time of year. Jesus is the reason for the season. What does that mean? Jesus here satisfies our intellectual needs. Here's verse 14. 
back to the disciples. You know, the disciples really are kind of the foil here for Jesus' teaching. They're the ones who don't get it. So when we hear what he's teaching them, we're reminded that they didn't get it. It's likely that we don't get it either. So this is a reminder that the teaching here is very important. They had forgotten to bring bread. They had only one loaf with them in the boat. They didn't have five. They didn't have seven. Of course, these loaves were probably enough to feed one individual. These weren't the big loaves of bread that we buy today. These were the smaller round loaves that they would break and eat when they had it, maybe even flat. It says they had one loaf with them in the boat, and he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And, of course, they understood exactly what he was talking about. No. They began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Here's the theme of bread. You know, bread is used throughout Scripture. In fact, we read from Deuteronomy where God said, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You know, the disciples kind of remember Deuteronomy. Maybe they should kind of figure this out a little bit. And if they remembered how Jesus could provide for the 5,000 and the 4,000, you would think that they would remember it really doesn't matter if they only have one loaf of bread. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be better planners. I mean, the disciples probably are just thinking, here's the leader, and he's going to tell us we didn't plan very well for this trip. And evidently they didn't. They only had one loaf of bread. But here's the point. Jesus says to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Don't you get? Jesus is going to say in John 6, actually already by this time historically, he said this after the feeding of the 5,000, he said, I am the bread of life. In fact, after the feeding of the 5,000, John gives us the teaching of Jesus in chapter 6 where he referred to the manna in the wilderness. The fact that God physically provided for the people 40 years of food falling down from the sky to feed a whole horde of people in the wilderness. How did they survive in the wilderness? It was because of God's miraculous provision. And Jesus is going to say, in a nutshell, I am that manna. I am the bread of life. In fact, he's going to say, if you don't feed upon me, my flesh, you have no part of me. This is the teaching that he's saying here. He is the bread of life. Apart from him, you have nothing. In other words, he's not saying here, by the way, when I'm talking about the leaven here, I'm talking about the fact that you don't have any bread. Watch out. You need to watch out. You need to get milk bread with leaven in it. No. He's saying here, I am the bread of life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Watch out for things that oppose me and this way of life. After all, what is the leaven of wickedness in the Pharisees and in Herod? And, of course, in Matthew's account, in the Sadducees. What is this wickedness that is so dangerous, this leaven? And, of course, the idea of leaven, if you're someone who bakes bread, you know that it's important to put the yeast or the leaven in the bread. And it has to, when you put it in there and you knead it and you put it all together, then it's going to spread all through the dough so that the dough will rise, right? So here it is. What is the leaven of the Pharisees? Well, for the most part, it's their hypocrisy. 
It's the fact that they had an outward level of spirituality. But inwardly, it was missing. It was symbolized in Nicodemus when he came to Jesus and Jesus told him, you must be born again. And he didn't understand that. And Jesus said, you of all people, a teacher of the law, should understand these kinds of things. But like the other Pharisees at that moment, his life was outwardly living for the sake of his own reputation and for the sake of the appearance of everybody else. But inside, it was not to please God and to be ready to believe in the Messiah that he had sent. Watch out for the leaven of hypocrisy. Maybe you came to church this morning because you're visiting family at Christmas time. And it's expected of you. You're not really interested in coming to hear the things about Jesus. You're just coming because you want your family to think well of you and you don't want there to be fights at Christmas time. That's hypocrisy. You shouldn't be here then. In fact, we are here to worship Jesus Christ because he is the king and the savior of sinners. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Matthew said, beware of the leaven of the Sadducees. What was the Sadducees' problem? Well, the Sadducees' problem was just rank unbelief. Not only didn't they believe that Jesus was the Messiah, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in the resurrection. In fact, they didn't believe in anything that Scripture said about the supernatural. Anything that was out of the ordinary or anything that didn't fit their political leanings or understandings or the power that they craved amongst their people was not important to them. And of course, this too. Some of you may be here this morning in order to come and go through the ritual of worship, but perhaps you don't really believe that the Bible is true. You know, at this church, we believe that the Bible is infallible, inerrant, and true in every place that it touches. It is absolute truth, whether you believe it or not. You can go down the street and go to a church that says the Bible contains the Word of God, but who knows what really is or isn't. Or that may really don't have anything to do with the Word. Unbelief leavens everything. When you don't believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, it affects, it affects your family, it affects everything about you, it affects your household. It is a leaven to avoid at all costs. But he also says here the leaven of Herod. Now what is the leaven of Herod? You know, the character we encountered here a few chapters ago, Herod Antipas, the guy who beheaded John the Baptist, and yet at the same time, this guy loved to hear John the Baptist. When John the Baptist was in prison, even though John the Baptist had told him, Herod Antipas, you are immoral in your actions and you need to repent, Herod still loved to hear him speak. And he'd invite him to come until he had him beheaded at the request of his uh, stepdaughter. And then when Jesus was in prison and going to trial, he loved to hear and wanted to hear Jesus. In fact, even when he was presented from Pilate to Herod, Herod listened to Jesus. He was eager to listen. In fact, it also tells us that Herod was seeking a sign from Jesus. What is the thing about Herod? It was a refusal to repent. He knew the teaching. Even though they were a horrible family, the Herods had knowledge of the scriptures. 
They, in fact, wanted to participate in the rites. After all, Herod Antipas' own father was the one who began the building of the temple that took 40 years to build at great cost and celebration. They had all this desire to hear righteous men even talking about the things of God, but he refused to repent. You see, the disciples don't get it. Why? Because they're focused on the physical things. It didn't turn to red. What is Jesus saying? Don't you understand? I'm warning you against hypocrisy, against unbelief, against the refusal to repent, because the world takes these things and runs with them. And that's the natural state of our hearts. We don't want to change. We don't want to believe something that will cost us anything. We don't really want to be honest about everything. We want everybody to think we're good, even if we're not caring about it. All these things. The disciples don't get it because they're focused on the physical. I have to say, I think this weekend, if you haven't seen the news, perhaps you don't know that all of Congress this weekend, weekend likely feels tainted by the egregious evil of a staffer in one of the most public political sanctums of our country. And while it's the latest nail in the proverbial coffin of any sense of moral high ground that politicians have left, it nonetheless reveals to us the cancer that takes place when this leaven of evil goes through all the dough. Is our system of government actually redeemable? Is it possible for us, not just as politicians, but as, as a society of voting individuals, is it possible for this system to still hang in place despite the wickedness of hypocrisy, unbelief, and the refusal to repent that is dominating our society right now? Well, we have to understand it doesn't matter to us whether that system is redeemable because there's something better than that here, and that's the kingdom of God. Here's Jesus' teaching style. Kind of interesting. He says to them, having ears do you not see, and having ears do you not hear, and do you not remember? Have you heard him say this before? He says this over and over again. Do you have ears to hear? Those who have ears to hear, what's he talking about? He's reminding them by, that the Spirit has to change them in order for them to receive this information. Then he says this, When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? His teaching style is, first of all, repetition. Sometimes people will say, well, Pastor, you repeat things too much. Sometimes you repeat it in the same sermon. The sermons could be shorter if you didn't repeat so much. But hey, Jesus used repetition. Remember what happened here. This was important. Remember what I'm telling you here. This is important. In fact, Scripture reminds us not once, not twice, but three times of one historic event in the Old Testament when God delivered the city of Jerusalem from the coming Babylonians, or Assyrians, rather. And, and, he recognize, and we recognize that this was so important because it's repeated three times in the Kings and the Chronicles, also in the book of Isaiah. 
We have four Gospels that basically tell us the same things about Jesus. It's very repetitive. But this is Jesus' teaching style for deaf ears. They have trouble hearing. He also gives tough questions. I don't think Jesus was just saying, by the way, disciples, do you remember how many baskets full were picked up here or there? I think so often Jesus asks those questions in a tough way and harshly. How many baskets were there? After all, there were 12. And if that wasn't enough, here it was a second time. How many baskets were there? Seven. And then he asks the final question, don't you yet understand? Matthew tells us that then they understood he wasn't teaching about the bread. He was actually teaching about the teaching of the Herodians, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees. But what he's really teaching in all is this. Christ is enough. He's the living word. He's the food that really satisfies if we try to invite syncretism into this, in other words, if we say Christ is not enough, I need more. That is the great error of today. The great heresy of the church today is saying God's word is not enough. If we say it's not enough, we try to invoke other philosophies and religions on top of Jesus and on top of his teaching and on top of the scriptures. What we're saying is the Bible does not satisfy. The word of God is not what satisfies the believer in spiritual things. Jesus, however, satisfies. I have to say, I'm a parent and I know. We're breeding a generation of bored boys. We're breeding a generation of restless young adults. But we're also breeding a generation of fickle, middle-aged, and retiring folks. We're always looking for answers, and we're prone to try clickbait at every corner. And we fall for the latest schemes of get-rich or other satisfaction schemes. Why? Because we're looking for something beyond Jesus Christ. We're looking for any means to satisfy our desires, even as raw and sinful as they might be. And we're trying to satisfy every intellectual curiosity, even those things that we're reminded we will never know, both to meet our voracious desires and to provide this show-me attitude. But what is Jesus saying in this scripture? I'm the one that satisfies. Sometimes we don't believe it like the Sadducees. Sometimes we try to act like we do, but inside we're not really satisfied and we're hypocritical. And sometimes we tell Jesus that may be true, but I want my own way. I don't really want to repent. Beware of the leaven that is amongst us and come to Christ he will satisfy. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you taught. We thank you that these signs accompany you to show that you really were the Messiah, the Savior of sinners. We thank you, Lord, that even though we are not promised ease in this world, even though we are not promised that all of our base desires will be fulfilled, 
yet, Lord, you satisfy. You will bring your people into the kingdom because your sheep will hear your voice and they will follow you. Help us, Lord, to be those who have ears to hear and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen.